The Time Out for Mental Health podcast is where we speak to sports figures about their experience with mental health issues related to depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Men in particular need support to ask for help when they feel off and don't know what is really going on with them. If they don't seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On the podcast, we want to uncover these issues so men can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, Mark Mangiola who has one of the most keen and savvy business minds in our country today. Additionally, Mark has been a volunteer high school coach for close to 10 years in track and field and cross country. We're honored that you're sharing some of your time with us today, Mark. How are you doing? Good, sir. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to sit down and chat. Glad you're here. Mark, how do you manage? You, you, have a, you work at a high level of expertise in the business world, and then you coach track and field at high school level. How do you, how do you gear up and balance those responsibilities? Well, first and foremost, the coaching at the track, of track and field cross country, and I actually do some speed and strength for the football team, is an outlet for me. Mm. Um, it's my therapy because I have the opportunity to spend time with really uh, good kids, both, both guys and gals, who they're in high school, they're struggling with everything from, where do I go to college? You know, what do I have to, what am I gonna do with my life? And for them, track and field is an outlet. For me, it's an outlet. And we all seem to bond together with a smile on our face. As you know, track and field is a fairly collegial sport. It's not nearly as intercompetitive at a school level as would be football or basketball. And everybody is welcome to be on the track and field team. So we field, if you will, teams as, as many as 160 kids. Oh, my so, God. That's great. So, so for me, that's therapy, to be able to spend my afternoon on the track with a bunch of good kids who are just trying to help figure it out. And at the same point in time, they're helping me figure it out. <laughs> That's, um, great. That's great. Let me, from a work let me go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, from a work perspective, um, you know, the 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 part part of my career was over by the time I was forty five, because we knew each other in the cable TV days, which we were in a high growth business. We were young. We were swept up by the rocket ship itself. So talk about being lucky, right? I was able to move up here and do a couple of startups, one which was not very successful and caused a lot of pain, and another one which was very successful, which allowed me to go, you know what, I think I'm going to coach track and field, and maybe I won't go back to work. Um, I did go back to work, as you know, um, because I don't think Cindy would have wanted me around the house. So the combination of being able to work without having the pressures of being a manager and coach track and field has, has been a blessing. Great. Well, 
you mentioned work and I noticed, which I didn't know until the other day, that you started working as an engineer at Time yep. Warner Cable. And yep. then you were promoted to positions in marketing and you were president of a division. And that's just the beginning of your business career. So I, I got to ask you, how did you switch from engineering to marketing to president of a division? Those are totally different skill sets. The engineering piece was really an offshoot of uh, an uncle of uh, an uncle. Um, my dad's brother was a physicist, worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, and when I was growing up as a kid, I'd spend a lot of time with him. So I'd like to tinker. I'd love the, uh, the mechanical engineering side of things, if you will. When I was getting, after I, I, I didn't complete my degree at St. John's. I was a junior when I figured out two things at St. John's. One is I wasn't going to get a track. I wasn't going to be on the Olympic team for track and field. And, <laughs> and I wasn't going to get picked up by a professional uh, soccer team. So that sort of said, hmm, what do I do next? So I came out to California and I finished my, uh, my engineering degree at Long Beach, Long Beach State. And when I did that, um, my uncle, who was running a big chunk of the military, um, got me an internship at McDonnell Douglas, which was a military contractor at the time. So I spent some time there learning how to be, for no better term, a practical engineer. Um, one of my mentors and best friends, who's now 85, a gentleman by the name of Larry Greenberg, Larry said to me, what are you going to do? And I was ready to do one of two things, either go into aerospace, which was big in the late seventies, or actually join the Marine Corps because mm. that's a lot of the work I was doing. Mm. And he said, why don't you do cable TV, which is what he was doing at the time. And I said, as what? And he said, well, I'll bring you out to Wisconsin. We're going to give you the title of assistant regional engineer, uh, but we'll figure out what we'll do with you. And I did, I made the move. So uh, the title of assistant regional engineer was a euphemism for learning the business and shutting up and standing in the back, <laughs> which is what I, I did that really well. Um, and they promoted me to general manager after seven or eight months um, because they just needed bodies. Yeah. So it was, as you know, we were growing so fast. Um, they said, we're going to put you into a management training program as a GM in a beautiful town called Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And that's how I started my career. I was rebuilding the cable system there when they said, get out to Orange, 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 California. Orange has a lot of problems and we need somebody who understands construction, mechanical engineering. And oh, by the way, you're the GM. So that's how the transition happened. God, I never knew so that. I spent my first year and a half in orange, literally in trenches and on telephone poles, um, building the cable system and would have a suit hanging on the back door of my little shoddy office and would go over to the city council meeting to get yelled at in the evenings. Yeah. We've all been there. <laughs> all right. So then you go on to work at some technology companies, Excited Home was very right. successful in the go-go days. And now you're uh, focusing on, on venture investments and uh, venture capital in the tech sector. Did you ever, did, did that ever enter your mind that you would end up there and be such an influencer? No, no not at all. Um, I was perfectly happy in the cable TV business. Um, I loved the business. I loved what we were doing. 
Um, what forced me out for no better term is when I got passed over to run the whole shebang. Um, I was the division president. We had just bought CVI, if you remember Cablevision Industries. Um, and a friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of John Bickham, who you know, who's yep. still a friend of mine, John had no home. He was in the corporate office in Houston when we were rolling back Cablecom. So Time Warner made John my boss and moved him back out to California. And frankly, that made me mad. And John and I are friends. And he said, listen, Mark, he says, I don't plan on being here long. And I was like, you know what? I think I've learned all I can learn in cable TV. And we're still, John and I are still friends to this day, by the way. Um, and I said, I'm going to depart and I'm going to try and do the startup thing up in Silicon Valley. So, so my ego got in front of me. And I was like, well, you passed me over, so I'm quitting. Well, I wasn't happy when John got the job either because you're much nicer than John. And I had to, <laughs> I had to go to John's office and, and I'd walk out with my tail between my legs. So, uh, so what drives you in these areas? What is it? Hmm. That, that you the motivation probably for me in the beginning, in the early stages, was um, financial security. Um, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class house. My dad was a milkman. Mm. Um, when the Teamsters would go on strike, all of the aunts and uncles would come and bring us food and stuff. And I would look at that and go, I do not want to be in that position. Now, my parents never showed fear, but I would look and go, this that scares me so for me what drove me all the time was financial security uh, and how would you describe your style of business that you use in all of your work is there a central message that you try to get across or how do you describe well, your style um, i try to be the dumbest guy in the room which means i hire people a lot smarter than me to sit around the table um, knowledge experts, if you will, in each of their domains. Um, you know, Rob, you know, Marianne, I would hire people who were better marketers than me, better engineers than I was, um, Barbara, better financial people than I was. And I've always maintained that. My job was to be, for no better term, the orchestra leader, to sit down and decide we were going to play Brahms or Beethoven, but let the principal violinist, the principal pianist, really run the show be the stars so if anything it's hire the best people you possibly can park your ego in the back you don't need to be the known person i never cared to be anyway um and then set a game plan you know the the game plan for me was always the pnl was my you know profit and loss statement was was my scorecard so theme was we're here to make money we're here to provide a service we want to provide a good service we want our customers to be happy. And I wanted all my people to succeed. I wanted my folks to make money too. So key theme was teamwork and a good message. Very cool. And so what would you describe as your most challenging aspect in your business career? You know, probably it at home. And when I first got to at home, it was this, um, and I was a VP of operations. I had ops and engineering reporting into me. And um, the biggest challenge was working with people 
who were adversarial towards the cable industry. Ooh. And I was a cable guy. Right. So Dean Gilbert, and I think you know Dean. Yeah. <laughs> Dean Gilbert, <laughs> who's my neighbor. He's right over the hill, by the way. Dean Gilbert and I were the cable guys who were constantly trying to control the Silicon Valley guys who thought they were much smarter than the John Malones of the world. And, you know, in the end, John Malone won. I don't think he lifted a finger. <laughs> As always. So the, the, that was my chance. And, and if, you know, Cindy would hear me say this, I'd pull my hair and I'd go, I've never, first and foremost, I was making more money than I ever thought I would make. Because we went public, the stock was trading high, blah, blah, blah. And I hated my job. Oh, what a story. So that was the challenge. The challenge was I'm now the adversary in my own company because these guys don't quite get who our partners are, Cox, Comcast, you know, TCI, uh, um, Rogers up in Canada. And they treat them, they think they're treating them like little children when you know in the end they're just going to pull the rug on us. Conversely, so that was Conversely, uh, what was the most gratifying part of your career? Cable Vision of Orange, believe it or not. A little cable system I could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I got there, everyone was panicked in Orange County because the, most of the cable operators were, you know, 14, 15% penetration. Nobody believed in cable TV. You know this. You know the story. You were there. And we built a really good business. We solved a lot of good relationships because county and the city did not like the previous management team before I got there. Um, and we really created a good customer atmosphere. We, we were, I, didn't, I wasn't embarrassed walking down the main street of Orange when I worked for the cable company. Cool. And the people that I worked with, all of them to this day, from the technicians to the office personnel, are still friends of mine. So it was, a, it was 30 employees, and it was a family, and it was a lot of fun. And ATC at the time, before it be, you know, became Time Warner, um, they allowed us to run with the ball. You know? Nobody called me up and said, don't do that. It was a wonderful job, an unbelievably good way to learn how to be a business person and a good manager. And I attribute all of that to timing slash AT&T, AT, AT, ATC, not AT&T. <laughs> not so fast, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so any part of your career, did you come home and you, you're just shaking your head and you're saying, Oh God, this is really hard. This is exasperating. It's tough. And did you feel like this was just too challenging? Um, when the first startup I did up in Silicon Valley was a company called Positive Communications. And um, when I went up to take the job, the largest venture capital firms in the Valley were all investors in this company. So I figured what could go wrong? <laughs> Kane and Parker, who I eventually went to work for, Kleiner Perkins, one of the big boys, Sequoia, another big boy, Menlo Ventures, big boy, and TCV, Technology Crossover Ventures, which is right now probably almost a PE firm that's so big. So I thought, well, I got all these big investors sitting around the table. And they said, oh, everything's in shape. It's fine. It's this. It's that. 
when we got up there, we figured out very quickly that the business wasn't what it was cropped up to be. Um, there were numerous problems all over the place. I won't go into all the problems, but just lots of things going wrong. And the company was, frankly, burning through more cash than the investors let on. So within seven or eight months, we were up against the wall. And I came out of cable TV, had a big safety net. If I needed money, you know, there's the big mom and dad back in New York will send me a million dollars. Well, the VCs are loan sharks in khakis. I know I became one. So they didn't, they wanted to squeeze every nickel out of this thing. And in that, I was sweating payroll, trying to figure out where that next dollar was coming from, trying to keep vendors happy. Um, and it just was a nightmare. And I would pace at three o'clock in the morning going, I got to make payroll next Friday and I'm not sure I got enough cash in the bank. Um, that renegotiating $30 million in debt at the time, which I had never, I had never negotiated debt in my life and walking into banks and playing chicken, that was a good scare. I didn't show them how scared I was, but it was when I got into my car and turned it on, I was like deep breath and one of those. So that was, I was in deep and I knew I was in deep. I was doing things. I, I was, I was playing right field when my previous experience was bat boy. Yeah. So that that's tough to, uh, to deal with. And, and you must've, did you ever bring that work home with you and did it affect your feelings and emotions and affect your wife or kids? You know, it, I would say probably not. Cindy may have a different story, but I would say probably, I would say probably not because to me, the kids were young enough back then where they were kind of the outlet for me. You know, if I could get home and put everybody in the car and go ride the small gauge train around Tilden Park outside of San Francisco and look at the back bay, that was, and get an ice cream cone by the, by the carousel, that was my calming effect. Sure. Um, and so if anything, once again, they were my therapy. Yeah. Right. So Plus, look, you know, my family, where I came from, you know, mom and dad, I, I, I grew up in Mayberry. Mom and dad were very chill. Like I said, when my dad was on strike, there was no money in the house. I never saw fear. I never saw concern. Now they did a masterful job of not showing it. If in fact they were feeling it. So let me ask you about your father. How would you characterize him as a man? Hmm. Well, if you look behind me, you see all of the, those are pillowcases that were given to parents of guys who were uh, uh, drafted or joined uh, the Army, Na Army Air Corps, uh, Navy, Marine Corps during the Second World War. So that's my dad and all my uncle's stuff up there. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, they were all World War II vets. They were all immigrants. They spoke Italian before they spoke English. Um, they were tough guys. My dad, one of them. Um, tough from a standpoint of, I knew every one of them saw action. You know, my dad was in the Pacific. He was at Peleliu, Saipan, and Okinawa. He was in some pretty nasty places. Uh, my Uncle Joe, the one who became a physicist, was actually an army surgeon when he decided he didn't want to practice anymore um, and went and became a physicist. Um, he fought through France, 
into Germany, he saw a lot of bad stuff. And the Army Air Corps' uncle Bruno, who was a bombardier on a B-17, and he actually made it. He flew 30 missions. Mm -hmm. um, so seeing these guys on Sunday sitting around the table having their, after church, having their scotch and their anisette, and all the women in the kitchen preparing an Italian meal is how I grew up. And there's this balance of these very tough men who all, my heroes, if you will, who all fought in the Second World War. And then there's these women who would chase them out of the kitchen and out of when they were ready. And you realize the Italian women actually ran the show. So my dad was a tough guy until my mom said, go do this. And the typical matriarch Italian household. Um, and I would work on the milk truck with my dad when I was 14 and 15, going delivering milk in the Bronx and in Brooklyn at three o'clock in the morning. So going with dad was always an adventure. Um, so my hard work, show up on time, don't screw off. Those were the messages that I got. And when I'd be delivering milk with him, oh, at four o'clock in the morning and it'd be cold and rainy, he'd smile at me and he'd go, your Uncle Joe and your Uncle Bruno in bed right now because they went to college. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say he was tough on you or would he be on the softer side with feelings and emotions how would you he was um he's tough from a work ethic standpoint but at the same point in time very italian uh especially his side of the family which was always hugs kisses um you know there was always a I'd be in the cab of the truck with him and he'd, he'd grab your leg and he'd squeeze it and he'd laugh and he'd punch you in the arm and he'd tell jokes. Um, so it was that combination of be a good guy, do your work, do it well, but have a sense of humor, enjoy your life. Cause he always enjoyed his life. Yeah. That's great. And did he ever talk to you about what it is to be a man and what masculinity was? You know, it's funny. No, and I'll tell you why. Because I saw the examples every day. You know, I saw his work ethic. I saw how he, you know, the funny part is how he treated my mom. Um, and I used to tell my wife this, which was, he would come home, he'd go to work at about 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd come home about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. And if we were home, he would come in and visit with my mom in the kitchen. My mom would usually be making something, typical Italian household. And he would put his arm around my mom and he'd start telling my mom some stuff. And if my brothers or I were like, hey, dad, hey, mom, he would go, shh, this is mom's time and my time in 20 minutes. You know, we'll all sit down. You can do whatever you want to do. So I watched how he treated mom, how he treated us. And I tried to emulate that. And frankly, I'm not as good at it as he was because he had a much more balanced approach to running that family. So he really showed you who he was as a man by his actions. Yep. Yeah. And and he but he did display his affection for your mom. Absolutely. And and that's that's refreshing, you know. Yeah. Well, um, once again, old school Italian, and and if you would, I, when I was back seeing uh, St. John's Georgetown. One of the reasons we went back is the last of the aunts, who's ninety years old, still lives on Long Island. So we went to see her. And the relationships between my uncles, my aunts, my father, and my mother were almost all identical. Um, yeah. Just how they treated each other. Mm -hmm. So I got to see it on multiple levels. 
um, did you ever display any risky behavior as a child growing up? Oh, you mean stupid shit. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a small town, so we would do the typical stupid small town mischief on Long Island. I would steal boats oh, and wow. take, out, take them out joyriding on Long Island Sound and then bring them back into their mooring, tie them back up to the mooring and then swim back in, from the river back ashore. You know, we could have gotten some serious trouble for that. Um, I was a... Uh, one second, I got two, two big golden retrievers barking. Hey, hey, shush. Shush, shush. Shush, quiet. Hey, quiet. Sorry about that. That's right. Golden retrievers, they sound tough, but they're not. Um, I've had them. You see, you know. The, um, you know, I... 14, 15 years old, I saved up my money. I was working at the uh, Sunken Meadow State Park and bought myself a motorcycle. So I did some very stupid things on the motorcycle. Um, I never did anything like, it's funny because my dad used to say to me, I know you're going to drink and you're probably going to smoke pot. You just call me and I'll come get you. <laughs> That's great. And I would go down with small town on the Nesqua River on Long Island Sound. We would all go down and drink heavily, smoke a little pot. And I would call my dad at two o'clock in the morning from the phone book. And he would come and get me on his way to work. And then drop me and my friends off at their houses. And, and just, so I had that relationship. And so that kind of behavior I didn't do. But stuff where, I mean, a couple things I did on a motorcycle, I'm surprised I didn't kill myself. Uh, Joyriding people's boats, if the, the owner of the boat caught me, my ass would have gotten kicked. <laughs> one, of the things so, yes. I, one of the things I mentioned in my book is that, uh, you know, it's tough for men, whether they know they are depressed or not, or have other mental health issues. And when they don't get checked and taken care of, that's when risky behavior shows up with, with either drinking or drugging or, or violence, domestic abuse and stuff like that. Um, and Excuse me, I'm going to shut my door. And I'm encouraging them to uh, ask for help and that their belief in masculinity norms sometimes holds them back because yep. they've been taught, hey, be a man, you got to toughen up, and uh, I don't want to hear your whining and, and complaining. Um, now, you've had some health challenges in the past few years. Once you felt that there was something wrong, did you ever hesitate to ask for help? No, as a matter of fact, I was misdiagnosed for about two to three years. Um, part of neuroendocrine cancer is that your stomach is off. I mean, you just are. Um, a little bit of heartburn, a little bit of diarrhea, just bad stuff. And it would come and go. And it's very hard to diagnose. And most doctors feel you probably have it for four or five years before a final diagnosis is made. Huh. So, you know, I'd go see my GP and we'd try different things. The one thing we didn't do, because you generally don't do, is a CT scan. If they had done a CT scan, you would have seen the tumors. Um, but the blood work looked pretty normal. 
And so I would come visit my, you know, I do my normal checkup. I would probably see my general practitioner, who's a good doc, um, a couple of times a year going, hey, this still wouldn't go away. So I get a protonic for this or something for that to mask what was going on. So when it came to personal health, I took care of it. I, you know, I didn't sit there and suffer or go, oh, I said, something's wrong. I got to keep fixing it. I got to keep figuring out what this is. So that's good. You, you, you did take care of it and you didn't, so you probably didn't feel any negative feelings or depression or you were in action. Well, I was in action until my duodenum literally burst, which almost killed me. And then I, you know, I woke Cindy up at four o'clock in the morning and said, let's, and I forget it. Cause I like to keep my sense of humor. I said, let's get to the emergency ward and beat the rush. <laughs> um, so I don't remember much. I remember getting into the emergency ward, them starting to do tests, getting admitted into the hospital about eight. Um, they had me drugged up pretty well. I remember the haze around when they brought the kids in because they weren't sure if I was going to make it or not. I remember seeing my, the kids look down at me uh, and a nurse with a mask. And the next thing I knew, I was in an ICU. And that's when they said, you've got neuroendocrine cancer. The doc who I knew uh, said, with his Texas accent, you got, a you got a tangerine in your liver and you got some dingleberries hanging. And I cut those out. Then I was like, well, what is he talking about, dingleberries? Um, and he said, you had a hole in your duodenum or do du a depending on who you talk to. And I repaired that, but I'm not sure if I got the margins. And you have sepsis because of all the shit that's spilled into you. So that's when you get scared. That's when you're like, okay, you know, and I'm scared because I'm thinking, do I have everything in order? If I don't make it, is Cindy and the kids going to be okay? All that shit goes through your head. And that's a little scary. And that's where you feel kind of vulnerable because you can't be this tough, go get them manager guy because you are no longer in control. But you had taken action up to that and then you knew up what was going yeah. on. And, and so you've been dealing with it. So now you have a couple children. How yep. would you, how would you characterize, characterize yourself as a father of your children today? Easy. Tough. Um, would, <laughs> no, I'm a pushover, but I'm, I would give myself a, uh, a, a probably a B if I had to give myself a letter grade. Um, because, you know, one of the things you try and do as a dad is you try and steer them away from your fear. You know, you know it's like, I was always financially afraid, security, blah, blah, blah. Both my son and my daughter could care less. <laughs> and they're, they're adults now. Um, my son, you know, he's a great guy. He was a really good high school basketball player. He was all county. Probably could have been a college player. But decided, yeah, you know, I don't want to do this. And him and Cindy played volleyball, as you know, for USC. So we were both college jocks. And we said, hey, okay, fine. Just go to school and get a degree and do whatever you want. But I was also the guy who was on the basketball court with him when he was younger, pushing him and pushing him and pushing him, which probably was a mistake, you know, because – I'm sure I didn't do that to any of my track and field kids. <laughs> so, 
So, you know, and I doubt very much if his jump shot or his ability to go left or dunk the ball had anything to do with me pushing him. <laughs> so that's, that's the lesson learned. Um, my, my daughter, on the other hand, um, and thank heaven Cindy, you know, is an MFT. She's the one who suffered from depression. Mm. Um, she was, she's one of those kids that didn't want to go to school. Um, if in fact we hadn't, we were, we had moved down into the Carmel Monterey or she went to a private high school. If she had gone to a public high school, they would have thrown her out because she just didn't go. Um, and she would go through pretty big bouts of depression. Um, we had, we had her seeing somebody for probably a couple of years and and for a while, and this is once again where I get a B, maybe even a B minus or a C, I was thinking, oh, because I don't understand depression. I've never had it. Um, oh, she must be playing us. I remember thinking that. Oh, wow. And then Cindy would pull me aside. Being a therapist, you know, she studied this. She goes, you don't get it. You know, and I'm a guy. I want to fix things. I want to fight through it. Come on, let's go. Bad approach. And I never tried to approach it that way either, because, like I said, I live with a therapist. So if I ever even went there, I'd get talked to the hand really fast. So that was a that was a challenge. Yeah, I can relate. The reason I wrote this book is because I was misdiagnosed for many years, and I have a severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. Okay. And luckily, I found a young doctor at UCLA who sat me down and did four or five months of research to find out what my condition was. And he diagnosed it properly, and he treated it properly, and I've never felt better, thank God. And you know, I had, I had, that was the cause of, I had addiction issues, and uh, life was a mess, and I was going to doctors, but they they did not know what was going on until this guy, young guy in his twenties, and and he really got his fingers dirty and diagnosed me correctly. And my mother, who was the daughter of a doctor, always fought with doctors when we were growing up. She wanted to know what was really going on. Don't bullshit me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I see the importance of it now. So it's, it's very important. Um, thanks for sharing about your daughter. Um, so you've had a great experience in business. You've had health challenges. Uh, anything you would do have done differently looking back? Mm. You know, I have no regrets, Tim. I gotta be honest with you. None. Um, I've been really lucky. Yeah. Like I said, if there were a couple things I would change, I, I, I wouldn't try to be the alternative basketball coach for my son. I would have let the coaches do their jobs. Um, <laughs> um, and when it came to Nicole, um, you know, I probably, you know, I actually feel bad that I thought, well, maybe she was playing us because I didn't understand the disease. Yeah, just didn't get it. 
and and if, from a behavioral standpoint, you know, I use, I don't know if you're familiar with an Enneagram. Yeah. It's, you know, Myers-Briggs to the 10th power, if you will. Right. Um, my wife uses those all the time, and she now has me using them in the business world. Um, if I had done a, you know, when I did my Enneagram and I saw what I was and blah, 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 if I had done a better job of self-assessment, I probably would have changed some of my style plays, pure and simple. Because, you know, as you know, you're older now, you're smarter now, you look back and you go, was the behavior that I exhibited in my 30s and 40s necessary to get what you wanted? Some of it probably wasn't. Um, did you sweat some of the small stuff too much? Probably did. But if someone said to me, you could get a carbon copy of your life right now, I wouldn't really change much except for those few things. So I, but I say I said, no regrets. And the telltale question I ask anybody I'm interviewing is, with the exception of the folks that you had to fire for cause, would they come back and work for you again? That's how I judge myself. Mm. Well, you're a better man than I because I had to fire a lot of tough situations. So my, my answer would be no, because the Fox was brutal. I mean, what can I tell you? <laughs> well, and you know, and it's funny, I know Fox was brutal, still is brutal because a couple of my companies do business with them. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you heard me talk very highly of ATC and Time Warner. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Cause the culture was just, a nurturing culture. Cindy and I both came from that culture. We always sort of lament, well, not as much anymore, but how, how those were the fun years. Absolutely. Absolutely. You probably well, had him at Prime Ticket working yep. with Tony. Prime Ticket, Cox, when I was working in the, on the cable side. Yep. I mean, yeah. Cox was great. They taught me the business. They, they couldn't do enough. So. As a matter of fact, after dealing with Cox, Comcast, my own company, Time Warner, but I dealt with everybody at at home, I can honestly say Cox was the best company to do business with. Yeah. Yeah. That was straightforward. Yep. So you've got, based on what you said here, you've got a pretty good handle on what it is to be, what is masculinity and to be a masculine man. Um, so how do you describe masculinity? Um, well, first and foremost, you got to be comfortable with being vulnerable. And that takes a little bit of time to get there. Yep. Um, but you have to be comfortable with being vulnerable, telling people how you feel and not being ashamed of it. Um, and I'm pretty thick skinned. I, you know, I grew up with brothers, uh, not a gal in the household. Um, fist fights ensued over the last piece of chicken, so you can imagine how I grew up. Um, so relatively tough guys, but because of the Italian upbringing and because of the matriarchal family, we were expected to express ourselves, uh, whether it be a hug, a kiss, I'm disappointed, what can I do? Almost a little bit of Jewish guilt, if you will, also thrown in for good measure. Um, and that is, you know, to me, masculinity doesn't mean, you know, beating the chest and look at me. It means, um, and once again, the, this comes from both my mom and dad, which is 
being a mensch, allowing other people to enjoy themselves in your presence, and being part of this egalitarian team, for no better term. Um, you don't have to be the alpha male. I never felt that way. Refreshing. Absolutely refreshing. You've had an amazing life so far. How would you top it? Um, I'm about to retire as soon as I'm, I'm working for healthcare benefits right now. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Uh, seriously, the, the companies that I work with, they pay for my healthcare benefits. I, really, I hardly even take a salary from these guys and they're good to me. Um, and I coach their CEOs and I coach their executive team. Headspace is a company you may be familiar with down in your neck of the woods. Yeah, um, yeah I coach their, uh, their engineering and technical teams. Um, I have this blessed life. I get to spend time with really smart people, impart some of my knowledge, listen, almost be a therapist for no better term, for execs. Uh, and I come back to this beautiful ranch overlooking the Monterey Bay, uh, you know, quiet. Um, you know, my big challenge is whether or not I just killed the rose bush I planted. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I have 450 Pinot Noir vines in the front yard. I make some really crappy wine. I mean, you know, it's, there, there's, there's no way to top just the serenity of where I'm at right now. And, and, and I look up every day, Tim, and go, thank you. And when you've got cancer like I do, you have to enjoy every day. You just do. Because you're not sure with the next scan if you got a whole different scenario on your hands. So I look up every day, go, thanks. I go out and enjoy the sunny day. I try not to kill plants. I play with the golden retrievers and, you know, and I enjoy myself. That's By awesome. doing not a lot of anything. Right. <laughs> well, your story is quite remarkable. You're a self-made man, uh, courage, bravery, you give to your community, a true role model for our, our world today. Um, we are honored to have you today. I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can learn from you and I can help others. Thanks again, Mark. Anytime, Tim. Anytime. Listeners, please be on the lookout for the Time Out for Mental Health podcast where you get your podcasts and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide.